You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi folks, and welcome to episode 19 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bushots. Joining me today, I have a lovely panel as always. Um, let's start on the west coast of the United States of America with uh, Mark Pauly is back with us. Hi, Mark. Hi. How are you doing, Bart? I am doing just fine. Um, this strange yellow thing has entered the sky here in Ireland. It's quite fun. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it's been gorgeous here too. We're, we're having a great year so far. Well, that's, that's lots more a year to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, somewhere in the United States, but I'm not actually sure where, uh, Conrad Joyak is back with us. Hi, Conrad. Hello. How are you? I am good. Where, actually, where are you in America? <laughs> I, I am um, in Memphis. It's about Tennessee. the middle-ish, then. Yes, it's mid-south. Okay, so okay, so we have Paul in the west, you're in the middle, and then all the way over in the east, we're also joined by Antonio. Hi, Antonio. Hey, Bart. How are you? Not too bad at all. I'm feeling very outnumbered here as the only European. <laughs> but we'll live. Yeah. So the topic for this month's uh, podcast is uh, a nice simple one that will take us two minutes to talk about. So landscape photography. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I don't know what it is. No, you've never taken a landscape photograph, Mark. Definitely not. No, no. So where to begin on such a broad, broad, broad topic? Um... Okay, well, I know, Mark, you're a big landscape shooter. I, I do a fair bit of landscape shot. Conrad, you do a fair bit of landscape shots. I do. And Antonio, I'm pretty sure you do as well. I guess you would call them cityscapes, but... They're well, the same idea, reason. right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Big vista. It doesn't have to be nature to be a landscape, in my opinion. It's Exactly. It's, yeah. it's an environment, it's an area, it's a thingy. Um. So, I guess the aim of a landscape shot is to capture the feel of a place. So, maybe if we go around and... You know, you're standing in a place. It inspires you in some way. Where, where do you start? Um, Antonio, do you want to kick off? <laughs> Could we just pass this to the West Coast first? I, mean, I was thinking, okay, that's such you a can big do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, only because, you know, it's landscape. And again, I mean, I do cityscapes, but I would like to be able to, you know, add to this rather than start it off. Okay, that's fine. I, I'll, I'll, I'll try. I'll take a stab at it. At kicking it off, I I think, um, and I know that I've said this before on the show when we talk about composition and stuff, mm. but it, it it fits it it's important for me. I think that uh, when I really started shooting landscapes that I enjoyed and was proud to share was when I realized that I was um, limiting the shot. It's so tempting to hit a big vista and be standing there as a person and try to get it all mm. and and realizing in a photograph uh, for a good landscape, uh, like you said, uh, catch the mood. But I also think tell a story, be able to actually have something in that image that is a focal point or tells a story or the composition balances it so that that image itself is um, compelling because it's uh you gotta separate the photograph that you're taking and the story that you're telling or the mood that you're conveying mm. versus this big expanse that you might stand be standing in so for me it was it, i think the important thing is to figure out what the story is i'm going to be telling in that image and limit myself sometimes 
Conrad, do you want to chime in with anything? I think I think I can continue on the on the story subject that Mark has mentioned because um, I always uh, when I when I take a picture I always think about uh, to include three three things in in a in a in a landscape uh, picture uh, is the foreground, middle ground, and and background. And uh, you can actually when you, when you think about t- telling a story within picture you can you can see where you should place that story in in the foreground, middle ground, or in the background. And you know I, I see and I hear from many people asking me how to take landscape pictures. They they show me a couple of examples of their landscapes, but they always say that uh, those pictures are a bit flat and they are not really what they were expecting to to get when they were taking picture and when i tell them listen you you are missing uh, a foreground or your middle you're missing a, a background and when they start thinking about including those three things in a landscape photographs their uh, their results uh, improve cool uh, antonio if you want to go very last i'll chime <laughs> in next otherwise i'm happy for you to go next um I you know I was going to add to the to the three part thing that mm-hmm. Conrad was talking about and in in a in a slightly different way by talking about elements in in the picture. I mean I'm always looking. Uh, this sort of combines what Mark was saying too. Looking for elements, three elements in a shot to tell to tell a story, mm-hmm. and landscapes can be really challenging in that respect because, you know, you're standing or even cityscapes, you're standing in front of something and you're looking at this giant vista and you don't know how to express what you're seeing. And, you know, the the instinct is to take a picture and look at it and say, okay, this is what I saw, but that's not very interesting. And I'm always trying to look for something that's going to um, balance out what I'm seeing. So if there's like a dramatic sky or there's dramatic buildings or something, I'm I'm looking for multiple elements in the picture to um, to be able to help sell the story in a sense. So, um, you know, it's kind of tricky to look at something and saying, you know, with your eyes, you, you have an emotional response to a landscape. And you're usually sitting there and you're saying, wow, this is amazing. And you take a picture and you're like, it's not working. You know, you may have the foreground, the middle ground, and the background, but it, you're still looking at it and saying, it, it doesn't capture what I saw. And so I'm always looking for that. Well, is it the sky is dramatic? Is there interesting, you know, is there a bird flying in the picture? Is there something that, that, that can help pull the picture together? So I'm always looking for those elements. Um, and I usually try to do two or three elements to make the picture worth taking. And so you'd pick those elements then so that together they they give you the narrative of the place. Is that is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes that doesn't always come when I'm taking the picture. Sometimes that comes afterwards when I'm processing the picture. So you choose so, what to highlight and what to... Yes. Whatever exactly. the opposite of highlight is. Yeah. What is the opposite of highlight? Mm. Suppress? <laughs> Suppress, ignore. Ignore? De-emphasize? Yeah. De-emphasize. 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 Yeah. yeah. Okay, so with my initial thoughts, so Conrad's three-layer thing, I think, is like the... If you're going to... If we could condense this entire podcast into one piece of advice that people should go home with, I think that was it. So maybe you can stop listening now. But, you know, I, I really think that is the single simplest piece of advice you can give people to turn their photographs, like, you know, from meh up to ooh with the least amount of effort. But I do sort of want to add to it and to say that I think, actually, it... it the reason that works, the reason it's such great advice is because 
it's a really effective strategy to give your photograph a sense of depth because our eyes give us a 3D view of the world and the photograph is flat. And if you don't do something to force that three-dimensionality into the picture, it's just one of 20 kabillion other people who have looked at a giant vista, pressed click on the camera and just failed to catch it. But I sometimes like to play with the same sort of the same end goal, as in I must capture depth, but without going for the foreground, midground, background idea. And it's often really great fun to play with vanishing lines. So tractor track or a river or, yeah, let's face it, railway tracks if it's me. Um, you know, something which would give that same sense of depth, but isn't necessarily your foreground, midground, background idea. So I just thought it expand out from that. Could, it, could I just pause for a quick second? Could we just define landscape? And, and again, Do you want to have a go? <laughs> well, I, only because, like, you know, I'm thinking about it from a point of view of someone who might be listening. And it's like, you know, the first thing I'm thinking about a landscape is like, okay, I'm standing at the Grand Canyon. That's a landscape. Or I'm standing in a field, you know, like Mark does the tulips, and that's a landscape. Or, or your train shots. But I'm thinking, like, what point do we consider it a landscape? Bart, you were talking about it. I'm thinking about a field of, you know... Like I'm focusing on a on a piece of wheat in a wheat field, and it's in the foreground. Would that be considered a landscape? I mean, what what do we define as a landscape? Like per- personally, I think if it captures the feel of a large environment, then it's a landscape. But that's just my personal definition. I don't know what what everyone else thinks because you know, I, I don't think there is a formal definition, is there? I'm not looking for the formal one, just like what we think it is, you know. Well, that's I look. So my take on that is, if it captures the feel of a large air, of a, of an environment, then I count it as a landscape. Be that a city, a village, a town, the countryside, a park, nature. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, and I and I think it's you also define it by what it's not. So it's not a portrait. It's okay. uh, not not a, a still life of uh, like a commercial shot or fruit on a table or whatever so it's so it it's what you said but it's also what it's not i guess huh so it's not a macro it's not yeah that works yeah. okay i can put that out there <laughs> i guess it, yeah well, no it, it's 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 worth saying because it's not just the grand canyon and it's not just pretty nature it's, it's more than that all right and like i you know i'm i'm the one i'm in you know a big city and so my landscapes are not necessarily natural, you know. There's buildings and, you know, streets. You know, you're talking about leading lines and stuff like that and avenues. And um, I happen to have this incredible view pointed east, you know. And I, I take pictures out there all the time. I would sort of consider them landscapes even though they're urban. You know, urban landscape, I would say. Yeah. Well, the, the urban is kind of interesting because you very often have a strange interplay of nature and very obviously not nature. You know, I mean, Central Park is probably the single biggest example, but, you know, you have these very, a lot of cities have trees all over the place because mm-hmm. they, they make it feel more human and some species of tree actually absorb pollution. I don't know if people realize that's why they were planted. Um, particularly in London, actually, there's a certain type of tree you see all over London called the London Plain. It is there for the sole reason that it sucks gunk out of the air. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, they were planted uh, around the time when London was really suffering from literally fatal smogs. <laughs> <laughs> and they absorb carbon through their leaves and they cake it onto their bark. And they have the most horrible flaky bark. But that's all the gunk that was in the air. 
But anyway, um, so you have this sort of strange mix of very angular, very artificial, very human, and then these beautiful trees and... You know, I mean, a lot of cities have a, a, a strange mix of nature, and of course, it's full of animals as well that are obviously not man-made. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also like to, you know, I I also photograph a lot of clouds from my window, and I tend to include the buildings and the streets and that as well. But you know, I, I would consider those, you know, either the cloud vistas. I would consider those landscapes in some in some respect. You know, it's not just a shot of the clouds, but like clouds well, well, and. Conrad, in your three-layer approach, how do you feel about classifying an interesting sky as layer three? Is, is that cheating? No, I think, well, there, you know, there are always rules and there are always ways to break the rules. And the, the three layers, is, they don't always work. So and you mean it's a guideline? Even, it's, it's a guideline. For example, even if you, have, if you just go with two layers, uh, let's say you are shooting uh, an Eiffel Tower, uh, yeah. And you have only the two layers, let's say an Eiffel Tower uh, and 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 the sky. The picture itself may not necessarily be interesting because you don't have the sense of how big the Eiffel Tower is. But if you just mm. place a person below the Eiffel Tower, then it shows the magnitude of that structure. And I guess that the, the the picture will immediately seem a bit more interesting than uh, the the one without a person that you wouldn't see how big the structure is. And the same goes, you know, for mountains, etc. So it's it's more like a guideline that you can you can play with. Yeah. Um actually the the, the you know the the foreground I think I've noticed it come up in conversation a lot. The foregrounds seem to really be a key to this. And something which I love about landscapes is by definition, well by the definition we've chosen, landscapes are big. Which means that for every background, there is a very large choice of foreground. But that, of course, means that you have a lot of work to do because you've got to pick one of the infinitely many. So imagine you're at the Eiffel Tower. You can see that for how many miles around? So that's a lot of possible foregrounds. You go with you know, some streets, you go with some tulips, you go with some people. So it, you know, I, my advice is always to spend lots of time thinking about your foreground because that makes such a big difference. I, I would definitely agree. Uh, the, I have a pretty nice example uh, in my in my library when I was in Porto. I was photographing um, one of the bridges at the Porto River, Porto River, sorry, mm-hmm. at night, and there was nothing really interesting in terms of foreground. There was uh, there was the, the the river that basically was not I was not able to capture uh, the, the river in a picture. But you know there was this nicely lit um, bridge, and there was there was nothing interesting besides that. Uh, but I was able to see there were those. Um, I have no idea what the the term in English is or any other language. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, those are the the things that the the sailors attach the the ropes to and their uh, their boats to when they uh, when they arrive to the harbor. I know what knows. you mean, and I'll be damned if I know what they're called. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, and I you know I decided to put one of these uh, in the foreground, and uh, they actually are not. And it, it's really hard to explain right now the picture in in words. But even this not interesting uh, foreground subject, it 
it made the three dimension in the picture. So I agree that you know it's it's always not that it's not always easy to find uh, a piece uh, a good piece that would go into the foreground, but. Uh, all even the the least uh, interesting piece that even if you include something in the foreground, it already makes a picture much more interesting, in my opinion. Definitely. Can, can you find a link to that and pop it in the show notes? I already have some nice stuff for the show notes from Mark and Antonio from what they've been talking about. So if, if you sure. pop them in the Skype chat, I'll stick them all together and into the show notes. Mm-hmm. And before we move from foreground, I'll also... We've I know that we've said this before, but I, I think it's sort of sometimes maybe a little counterintuitive when you're shooting a um landscape that you're mm-hmm. you're paying attention to what's you know ahead of you in a lake or a mountain or some hills or something, and maybe you're standing somewhere where where there's some trees next to you and uh your initial instinct might be let's move away from these trees, get out of the way because I want a clear shot of the hills or the lake in front of me. Um, But actually uh, standing somewhere where maybe one of those branches cuts across the upper corner um, or maybe is just off to the side framing your image a little bit gives you that foreground. So the instinct might be to move away from those things, but you might actually get a better shot, get that three-dimensional depth by actually leaving those elements um, in your photo. Yes, because the edges can still be one of your layers. If that makes sense. Yes. And just actually, uh, Conrad, on your point there about you know something very... I would say perhaps unphotogenic. I mean, a big metal ring that boats tie up to doesn't sound like the most beautiful thing in the world. I think we can all agree on that. But I think it actually is a great choice of foreground because what it does is it tells a story. This is a river where boats moored historically. I mean, no, it gives a sense of place much more than anything else could. Be you know, it's not photogenic in its own right, but by adding it into the context, it actually is really important. Yes, and it also tells the story, you're, you're completely right, it also tells the story that it's not only a river, but it's also a place when uh, when uh, the boats uh, dock. Yeah. So it's a place of commerce, a place with history, because the chances are something like that is going to be, rust, you know, if not rusty, at least sort of textured like it's been there for a while. Absolutely. Um, so Something I like to try do with my foregrounds, if I can, it's it's always difficult, is... If you think sort of a landscape has a, a big sort of feel, you know, you might have like rolling rolling hills or whatever. It's sort of a, a big aspect of, of what a landscape is. But at the same time, a landscape also exists at much smaller scales. So what's the vegetation like? All that kind of stuff. So if I was on a mountain or something, I'd try find, you know, a rock with some heather or something as the foreground. Because that way I'm telling the story at multiple scales. You know, this is the big picture landscape, but it's actually made up of this. In the in the short picture, if that makes any sense. Absolutely, I pay. I, I think that's again kind of going back to my original thought. To paying attention to the details and even the small stuff, it's so easy to get sucked into that big expanse that you're looking at, and and not realizing that maybe some small element can actually tell the story or convey the feeling or uh, that you're that you're feeling at the moment. Yeah, it also, I mean, it helps draw your eye further into the picture. You know, it's these, Yes, it's sort of like, let's see, I'm trying to think about it. If you're looking at this in reality, it's almost too much to look at. And if you ask your viewers to look at it too, it could also be too much to look at. It's nice to give the viewer these little steps 
um, as they move into the picture. So if there's a rock in the foreground and then there's an, something else behind it and a fence and then there's the the house and then there's the mountain and then there's the clouds, your your eye is sort of naturally taking these steps into the picture, sort of moving in into it. And, and it's kind of a helpful way to, to keep your viewer from being overwhelmed by something. Uh, yeah, because if, you, if your eye has a natural way to wander through the image, then people will, yeah, sort of mentally walk down that path you've laid for them. Yeah. yeah and, and, and actually, a physical path is a really great way to do that as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, uh, be it, you know, some tractor tracks through a field of wheat or be it a, a weavy footpath through a park or be it, you know, a joint big avenue through New York. It'll certainly lead the eye. Yeah, you're taking your viewer on a trip as well. They're they're sort of tagging along and they're seeing the the pathway into the picture too. It's a very obvious thing to do too. Yeah, those like you said before, the leading lines. Um, I mean, you can do that with the paths. You can do that with objects. You can do it with all sorts of stuff. Um, it's also nice to have the eye sort of bounce around a little bit. Each you know, like when you just talked about a weaving path, you know, you're basically going from left to right to left to right. Uh, that can also be a nice way to to lead your viewer in. You can do it with a path, or you could do it with objects as well. And although uh, something just occurs to me here, so we're telling everyone how important the foreground is and how it should be something that you know gives some sort of sense of place. Perhaps is the best way to summarize it. But I would also warn against necessarily putting it in the center, because then the chances are it may utterly dominate to the point that it's not a landscape anymore. So that's kind of where Mark's suggestion of framing stuff at the side really works well, because if your foreground is left and right, then it's not going to stop your eye from moving into the landscape. Whereas if you put a rock dead center in the front of your shot, that may stop you moving through the shot. It may act as a barrier. Whereas if you take that same rock and you put it a third of the way in from the edge, then it adds context, but doesn't, it's not a roadblock if, that, if I'm not mixing my metaphors too badly. It all comes back to all of our original compositions as important in in a nice landscape as any other kind of uh, any kind of Im other kind of image and um, thinking about those elements putting instead of putting it dead center or using the framing of the trees or whatever it's it's all the elemental comp composition stuff we've talked about over and over again it just make sure you apply it here it's probably even more important here actually than in most types of photography. Yeah, to make it more interesting, because yeah. it's it's so easy to get a flat or uninteresting landscape just because you you don't know what you're shooting necessarily, or you can't choose. Something else I just have sort of I I I was taking some mental notes to myself while you guys were talking to make sure I didn't forget stuff. So we've been telling people we want all of these layers, which is important because it gives a sense of depth. But don't forget to be careful of so-called mergers because our eyes are going to tell that the tree is a different distance from whatever. But once you take it onto the onto your, you know, your sensor, onto your film or whatever, it'll get squished down. And so if you have a road sign behind someone's head or whatever, it could have very unexpected consequences. So just be careful of the effects of the flattening. The, the trees or the bushes coming out of somebody's body or head or craziness. Yeah, or a tractor that seems to have a giant big stop sign out of the back of it or something silly like that. I mean, it's it's very easy to accidentally forget that, it, you know, your eye knows it's three-dimensional, the photograph won't. And, and it can be humorous, perhaps, or it can really ruin your shot. <laughs> um, also, 
how do people how do people feel about perhaps subtly improving the landscape from what it really is? Uh, I'll give you a very concrete example. So there's there's a really beautiful historic churchyard near where I live that that's I believe it dates back to the year approximately the year 400 AD, kind of old. And it's this beautiful stone wall, and it's in a rolling field. And probably no more than 60 years ago, some idiot put a line of pylons right next to it. Like, we're talking about three yards from the wall, this line of pylons comes careering through. And I just photoshopped them out. I am I am totally okay with that. Because um, for me, shooting a landscape is trying to capture the mood or capture number one, try to capture the mood and convey that to the viewer, uh, or number two, at the same time, have it be somewhat artistic. I just shared a link with you. One of my absolute favorite images is called Misty Stilly, and I will give away the secret here. It's it's um, The image is very blue, mm. and it's I did that on purpose. I, it's a, I added... I, the image, the original image is not that color. The original image is kind of a white haze uh, of of fog and mist around the trees. And for me, it just really needed needed that color to convey what I was trying to convey in the image. So I did it. I did it on purpose. And, and I'll do that with other images, maybe enhance a color here or something. But this is this is an example of one where it's, you know, I've, very much did something intentionally and did it differently from what the image coming out. And same thing, photo, Photoshop out graffiti on a building or a post that is in a place that just doesn't work for the composition. I think it's absolutely, totally okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. I think uh, I, I, I put a big depends on that. <laughs> okay. Because um, I've done both. You know, I'm like very much of like taking a picture of the environment the way it is. And showing that is mm-hmm. part of what it is. And then I'm like thinking, well, you know, if I wanted to sell it, maybe I wanted to make a nice print and sell it as a landscape picture. I might I might do the Photoshop work or if I'm really into just documenting what it is that we're looking at, I w- would leave it alone. Um, so I, I, to me, it's not one or the other. You know, Bart, you were talking about these pylons and stuff mm. like that. Um, that. That does sound like a pretty intense Photoshop well, job. But the issue, right? But the issue with it is that in the when you're there in person, they're you know they're that sort of brown muck they put on wood to make it sort of blend in. They actually don't stand out that much in real life. When you're there, they don't feel dominant. But when you capture the bloody things with a camera, they utterly dominate the frame in a way they didn't do when you were physically there. And so I think that's not really cheating in the same way because I'm capturing what it felt like to be there, and the photograph was artificially making this seem worse. If that makes sense. Mm, yeah, yeah. Again, you know, it's you depends. Know, I, wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it cheating or anything. It's, it depends on what you're going to do with the picture. I mean, part of my challenge to you would to see how mm-hmm. could you incorporate these things into the picture and make them part of it without it being something like, well, I just want to get rid of it because they're ugly. Because um, it's very that's the easy way, right? I mean, not technically easy it's probably spending a lot of photoshop time but you know what i mean it's like there's something there and it's like well i'll just get rid of it later and like how can you look at a at a a landscape or a subject and see these things that you're not sure about and 
and incorporate that as part of the beauty or part of the part of the subject. You know, it, does, it means you could later on decide you want to Photoshop them because, sure, you always have that option. Well, I did find but, the composition that means there's only one of them, but I still end up Photoshopping it out. Yeah. I just like, you know, I'd like to challenge people to see if that's something that... Uh, oh, hang on. I found one where I managed to not Photoshop it out. How did I do that? <laughs> oh, right. that's interesting. Challenge accepted. Yeah, no. It's, <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, I'm going to pop this one in the show notes because I did actually find the composition where I... You can see the pile on, but it's completely not dominant, so... Yeah, see? So, I, sort of my point, too. I mean, you can do... If you're obviously in this location for a period of time, you walk around and you do all the, the, the different types of pictures. You have the shots where you say, okay, I can take those out later. And then here's the shot where I incorporate it and it becomes, you know, a record of this place that you've been to. Uh, and with all the challenges and, and uh, you know, realities of Actually, what's Actually, I there. remember when I shot this, my back is touching the next pylon. I, <laughs> I, I stood with my back to it is what I did. And then I, I, I avoided the next one in the line being in the shot. And then the one you see is the third one in the line. And the fourth. So, yeah, okay, you can get away with it. But I still don't, I have no problem photoshopping. The other example yeah. is litter. When you're there in person, a red piece of plastic probably isn't going to catch your eye. In the photograph, it can outshine an entire landscape. Just one, one wrapper of someone's chocolate bar. Well, you'll get no argument from me about photoshopping. <laughs> healing and stuff get get that stuff the heck out of there yeah absolutely i think there was there was one in particular it was actually it ended up being published as the inside cover of a, of a book on irish railways and it was taken at dusk and it was almost dark but someone was fishing for something with a luminous orange lure floating up on the top and i didn't even notice it when i was there in person but when I finished processing the shot, that red was just like someone had put a neon lamp in the middle of the canal. And I had to Photoshop it out. That image would never have been usable and it would never have ended up on a cover of anything. You know, and in, in total, it was probably like 20 pixels across. But it utterly ruined the shot. There wasn't something that you could pick up either, right? No, it was in the middle of the water. And I didn't feel oh, like getting wet. Okay. <laughs> I would, you know, to, to add that little bit of like we're all, we're all out there in nature taking pictures. If you see the stuff, pick it up and throw it out. Bring it with you. If you're able to. Yes, yes, absolutely. It has to be the the nature. Minimize the, or do a bit of cleanup. Um, some, another note I took to myself while we were talking. Um, I like to avoid taking landscape shots from the height of the average human's head. Because I find they tend not to give the most interesting shots. So I will try... Generally speaking, I haven't. I don't have a jetpack, so I will try to get lower than my head because I find it very hard to get higher, although I'd love to be able to. Maybe if I wasn't afraid of heights, I'd climb trees or something. But I, I tend to find you have more interesting landscapes if you get down low, and it also makes this whole quest for a foreground kind of a lot easier. Well, um, you mean like bug's eye view kind of thing? Well, just kneel down. Yeah. You know, so so that the point of view is not the point of view everyone else has, and that's often enough, I think, to just tweak a shot slightly, just to get it that little bit different. I, I agree with that with all sorts of photography. I mean, landscape. You know, we're talking about that. I mean, I I'm very much about not putting the camera right up to your face, even though I do it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Stand there and take the shot. But you know, I'm all for the exploration of the different viewpoints. Um, I mean, uh, part of me is even. When I photograph the uh, 
when I was doing calendars for the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, I I took a monopod and modified it and I put a, a tripod head on top of it and I would raise it above my head as as high as ah. I can go. I ended up with a viewpoint roughly about 12, 13 feet in the air. Um, and that's a viewpoint that, you know, the typical person doesn't get. And, and so, no jetpack needed. No jetpack needed. Sometimes with certain types of pictures, you don't really notice the difference because of the perspective of what you're shooting. But sometimes, you know, you can get that. I, I often would try to put a, a, a tree leaf or a flower in the foreground that was up in the tree that I could not find before. And I would try to take that angle and then have everything in the background as well. So that's, you know, if you can't, you know, if you can't drop to the ground, well, if you can drop to the ground, you can also maybe try to raise yourself up somehow or raise your camera up. Yeah, and definitely by getting low, you get you tend to get your foregrounds not quite for free, but they tend to have a slightly easier time of it because there's more stuff near the ground. So I'll, I'll pop in the show notes as well. So the, the, I actually found another shot of the same place with those bloody pylons where I again managed to completely avoid the pylons without any photoshopping whatsoever. And I did that by sticking my camera at the height of the grass and cropping out everything else apart from just the grass and the gate and the wall. So anyway... I have a feeling we have, well, anyone have any further thoughts on composition? Not at the moment. <laughs> okay, yeah, might, the, the, you know, by whole means. Not, not that I want to add yet, and I think because right. I think there's some other topics we should hit on, okay, on, well, do, on do you good wanna, landscapes. Do, do you well, want to lead off? Sure. Um, you're, you're driving the bus, but I'll go ahead and lead off. No, I, no, I no, no. This is, this is, uh, this is a, a, a commune of some sort. I'm trying to think of the Monty Python line. With it anyway, so I think that I mean we 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 hit composition, and I think the other thing that's that's really important for landscapes, unfortunately, is light. Paying attention to the light because it really can make a difference. And uh, I, the the old advice of golden hour, the the hour after sunrise, the hour before sunset really does make a difference. It doesn't it's a it's a rule you can break. You can you can get good shots at other times of the day. But paying attention to the light is is really critical and I think uh it it definitely is worth getting up early. If if you're averse to getting up early, you might want to stop listening to this episode and start listening to Antonio's street shots cuz cuz then you don't have the problem of getting up early. But uh, it's it's absolutely <laughs> absolutely worth it to to All right. To I, I hate getting up light. early, right? Oh. <laughs> and yet I completely agree with Mark because I have been so well rewarded every time I have made myself do it. You know, places I have been a hundred times that weren't particularly, you know, didn't come out particularly well on photographs. I would set an alarm for myself. I would get up at six o'clock in the morning, get on my bicycle and cycle out. And I would come home with superb photographs. I have and, never been disappointed. And and I, I guess what I'll say too, uh, to add to that is to broaden it out. It's not just shoot early, shoot late. You're guaranteed to get a good shot. But I guess what I'm pay attention to the light and, and, Think about what this place is going to look like when the sun is somewhere else. It is maybe you don't have a really good shot right now, but maybe when the sun's in a different location, it's going to totally change what you're looking at, and you're going to get a lot a, a lot better image. So, sort of be patient, use your imagination. What's this? What's this place going to look like under different light? But certainly, 
a bunch of a majority of the time you're going to get a better picture early and late because of because of where the where the sun's lining up and the light you're getting. Can can I press back on you a little bit? Yeah, oh, good, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'm not a big fan of getting up early either. Although I do just naturally because when I'm going to work I get up, so I tend to take a lot of sunrise pictures. Um, not so much in the summer because the sun is rising a lot earlier. I'm not getting up at four in the morning. Sorry. <laughs> I'm um, going to bed at four in the morning sometime. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I I I agree with you, Mark, totally. The those times of the hour are sort of like natural great periods of time when you can get great light. I mean, it's almost like a given, you know, if you got a good sunny day. Uh two things I wanted to talk about quickly would be one is midday shots. You can get such great stuff in midday. It may not be the best color photograph that you can get, but there's a lot of great black and white pictures that you can take in midday. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially when you have clouds and blue sky and a lot of shadows coming straight down. I mean, they're, they're, they may not be the most flattering color picture, but if you do midday stuff, consider shooting black and white. Um, mm, interesting. It can offset the... You know, because again, you're not dealing, you are dealing with light in a way, but you're also dealing with shapes and shadows and stuff like that. So it's a whole different, maybe it's another talk about, you know, black and white versus color for this. But uh, don't forget that black and white is part of the tool palette that we have as photographers. So, you know, you could find yourself in the midday someplace and, you know, some sun is right above your head. Think about black and white. Mm. And, and can, can I piggyback off that suggestion sure. and just yeah. say, you know, if you are going to do, if if you do decide that the black and white is a good way to go in the middle of the day, and there is, you know, a, a sort of a mix of blue sky and fluffy white clouds, if you have a circular polarizer, throw it on and give yourself a real treat because you can make that blue sky go black and just really have a striking dramatic shot. You can. I would put a caveat on that. Uh, it would mm-hmm. be depending on how wide your lens is. Oh, yeah, or you'll have a vignetted horrible shot. Very, very wide lenses don't react well uh, to uh, to polarizers. You'll get sort of un- uneven uh, coverage in the sky. But, yes, I agree. And the other thing I just wanted to add uh, on top of that is, like, don't always just think about going out when it's sunny. I mean, some of the best pictures I've taken, Bart, I can just imagine in Ireland what it's like when the – you know, it's overcast and clouds are there and you have these green hills and stuff like that. And I love to photograph in the rain, especially landscapes. Um, well, I, I like it. To me, actually, March, well, I don't know, it, it's, sorry, it's April showers. To me, actually, April is a great time of the year in Ireland because we tend to have this mix of the weather doesn't quite know what it's doing. And so <laughs> you tend to have a mixture of sunshine and showers. And if you manage to be in the right place at the right time, that you're in the sun and there's a really angry shower in the background, you have what I believe is called storm light, which has got to be the single coolest mm-hmm. thing for landscape shot. So, you know, imagine warm, warm, pleasant foreground and this angry, dark, black sky in the background. It's so dramatic. I love when that happens. And there's a good chance you can get a rainbow too. Yes, which is a real bonus. Yes, yeah. And you can kind of, after a while, you can kind of feel when it's going to happen. Like, you, you know, you know, you're looking at the clouds, and you're like, and it's just finished raining. Like, you know, I bet in about five minutes there's going to be a rainbow. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the rainbow will always be behind you. Or sorry, put your, put your back to the sun and the rainbow will be in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. It can't be anywhere else. <laughs> just, just the laws of physics, you know? Well, it might be behind you, but you're not going to look at it. I don't know. Well, that's true. 
Um, what else did I have? I have a funny. Did you? Thing. I interrupted we, you, Antonio. So you were probably going somewhere else. No, I, I already said it about the day, about shooting in in the clouds. But oh, just as, I never remember. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so you know, you, you know, if you can't do the whole, you know, golden hour thing, be it morning or evening. Uh, I do much prefer the evening ones. Uh, I, I, if you're going to be out during, you know, when the sun is quite high in the sky, I, I try to get in a situation where it's not behind me. It's sort of nearly 90 degrees to the side of me, sort of side light on things, because at least then the shadows tend to be interesting. And even if I was shooting in colour, I would try that. Or do people think I'm nuts? <laughs> no. I, Antonio's laughing? No, does, I that, just like, does that mean yes, you're nuts? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, obviously shadows can, can give you some really interesting images, I think. It really can add to it. So... Again, starting at the top, it's a rule, but we can break the rule. And if you're out in out in midday or high sun, you know what? What are you looking for? Antonio says maybe do black and white. Uh, see if there's some interesting shadows. So I think it's all pay attention to the light. Yeah. And you know, also thinking about textures and stuff. You know, the light is going to change how that appears. You know, so if you've got light from the side. There's a good chance you'll be able to see a lot of the textures of whatever you're photographing, rock or dirt or ground or, or whatever. Um, so if the light is behind you, you might not be able to see that so well. So I agree with paying attention with the light and thinking about things like texture. Well, and the light can make the texture much stronger yeah. if it's coming in from the side. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's a good point. It's, I mean, I, I posted a picture, you know. I was going to talk about viewpoints. I'm not sure how to say that. I mean, I, I posted that well, panoramic but Actually, picture. before we go off, okay, just one final little thing. So right, we're saying, you know, pay attention to the shadows. They can be useful. They can also be a foreground. Um, I'll just popping a photograph into the show notes. I, I was kind of stuck for a foreground, and so I decided that a giant big shadow of a tree could be one of my layers. It's funny that that's what I just shared with you as well. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So that's obviously a common meme. Shadows can be foregrounds. Foregrounds don't necessarily have to be something more concrete than that. And actually, texture as well. And in, in that same shot I just shared, the you know, autumn leaves can be a fantastic texture. You're using the shadows as leading lines too, in a way. Yeah, it was very nice actually of the trees to be so straight, <laughs> <laughs> and for the sun to be in the right direction that they point at the at the at the spire of the church. Very convenient of the universe. Is your shadow in that image? Are you hiding yourself in a tree? I put myself behind the tree. Yeah. Yeah, because I hate seeing a picture. I hate seeing me in the landscape. Right. With a tripod. Oh, no. Unlikely to be a tripod. I'm usually out on the bike when I'm taking landscape shots. Oh, really? You're not using a tripod? No. No. Uh, Why why not, may I ask? Just because of... cycling Cycling with a tripod is a real pain in the backside. Sure, but um, that's simple. Is that the only reason why? Is because it's a pain? I mean, yeah. if you were walking, would you use a tripod? No, I might stretch to a monopod. Right. I mean, I don't know if that's something worth talking about a little bit too, because no, yeah, I think that's a it's a it's, it's as for, good a segue as any. I mean, for a couple of reasons. I mean, part that partly is um, one of the things I cannot stand and I have trouble with sometimes in landscape photographs is getting the horizon to be straight. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, of course, you can say, well, I could crop it later and blah, blah, blah. And 
I always find that kind of a not a great thing to do because when you have to crop, you end up losing things that are along the edges of the picture, which you may not want to lose. So I'm all for trying to get the shot as straight as possible when I'm photographing it. And a couple of things come to mind is first having – we've talked about this before, about a level on the camera uh, that you can see uh, if the horizon's level. Some cameras have built-in uh, levels, electronic levels, which I don't really trust that much because they don't feel like they're high enough. I only say resolution, but I don't get the feeling that they're perfectly uh, horizontal. But then the idea is a tripod as well. A tripod could have um, – you have the ability to set the tripod up and create a very level horizon, you know. And uh, there is one thing actually I love about a tripod: if if the weather is playing ball, which it isn't always necessarily the case, but if the weather is playing ball and you can uh, you have clouds that are moving fast enough to capture in you know a reasonable time, that could be a really fun way to make use of your tripod too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. That's a I mean, you know, climbing up mountains with a tripod can be a real pain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it can. No matter how light they are, they're still not light enough. And I, I'll use a tripod as often as I can. And um, like Antonio says, helps with getting a nice level horizon. But also, uh, if I'm what I, I'll get a composition that I really like, and I find that the tripod helps me hold that composition. If I'm trying to be really precise, lining up leading lines or framing with trees or whatever, having that tripod and, and locking it down, and then maybe if I'm going to adjust the settings, try different exposures or whatever, I don't have to keep recomposing all the time. I, I get it locked in on the tripod, and then I can mess around with everything and not have to keep recomposing. So I, That's interesting I, because I, I hardly ever use tripod myself but uh, as a, I mean obviously for night photography always I use a tripod um, but actually when you when you say about using tripod and when I think about taking a landscape photograph during a day I, I might actually start using a tripod because I think it might also help me in let's say um, taking a bit more time into the composition as you said Mark and also maybe you know spending a bit more time in one place and just looking around uh, when it tam- when it comes to what to include in the foreground background and 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 middle ground and also uh, just to enjoy enjoy the moment and the the landscape I think it really helps with my composition because I really pay attention and lock it down so just something else again i'm just I'm somewhat sort of scanning through my own Flickr stream trying to remember things. I'm not sure that's necessarily the most organized thing to do, but anyway. <laughs> something I discovered last summer um, is that you can have fun in the evening times by breaking all the rules and just shooting landscapes into the sun. And it sounds like it shouldn't work, but I actually had some really fun successes with it because that means that there's big shadows coming towards you. And you can use those to add strange interest. So I've just popped one in the show notes that I literally just shot pretty much straight into the sun. And I really like it because it sort of captures, to me, it captures that warm summer evening feel. You can imagine me out in a t-shirt and a pair of shorts as a beautiful summer's day is coming to an end. And again, you know, shooting straight into the sun shouldn't work, but it 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 does sometimes. 
Well, I think in that case, also the sun is a bit behind that uh, that tree, so it kind of helps in that case. Yes, yeah, so it's casting those massive shadows because it's low in the sky and, you know, straight behind the trees. Great shot. Really nice. Cheers. Um, does anyone have anything anywhere else to go? Because I have, I have two other potential topics of discussion if no one else wants to chime in. I guess I didn't know if Mark mentioned this, um, but with a tripod, this idea of doing multiple exposures, too. I did not. Did you, I did not yeah, say oh, that. Okay, sorry, I thought you said that. So, well, well I, it, what I say, I mean, you're 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 talking in terms of like an HDR multiple exposure, because what I, my comment was that I lock in the I can lock in the uh, composition that I like, and then try different things to make sure I, see, I get yeah, it. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm talking part of the thing about doing landscape photography, especially Bart in the shot that you're showing, um, where you're pointed at the sun. If if you are on a tripod, you're going to be locked down so that you can take multiple exposures of the same scene, hmm. and thus have this option later on in post processing if you want to process uh, different pictures, uh, different exposures, and blend them into one shot. Which, um, I I I. I don't want to quite call it HDR yet because... Yeah, but you are I'm dealing more... with the dynamic range. So it's sort of that school of thought, but not the same thing. Right. Yeah, I'm, you know, to me when I think the audience might hear HDR, they might think of these pictures that are so whacked out or something. And I, I'm really just talking about this. I mean, we would have done that in the film days too sometimes is, is make different exposures so that we have a shot um, for the uh, an exposure for the sky, an exposure for the grass, and we blend those two into a picture so that you can see as much detail, but it won't look like any what people think HDR pictures look like. It's just you see a lot of you just have a lot of tones in it. So um, I, I might be just sort of nitpicking here about the the, the phrase because I I, um, I really don't like you know when I hear HDR it, it, to me it encompasses a lot of things, and sometimes people are turned off by that that look that people th think is HDR. And I like to think, well, if you can just get a, gr if you can grab a full range of tones, you're just increasing sort of the, the range that your sensor has. I wouldn't necessarily call that HDR. I mean, it, we could argue it one way or the other. I, so, I think actually we will argue it one way or the other, but not today because I think there's an entire show in that, in that yeah, topic yeah. of just dealing with that problem that has been plaguing photographers for the last 200 years. <laughs> yeah. But I would say that a tripod would certainly help you uh, be able to do that so that you could bracket the picture, take multiple exposures, everything is locked down. And as long as maybe the trees aren't moving too much or there's not a lot of things moving in the picture, you, you would have that option later on. Yeah, of course, a windy day is not your friend in this kind of situation. No, no. But Does any, anyone else want to chime in with something? So I would – what I have down here on my notes that we should probably discuss is – although we, we've touched it tangentially already actually – is weather. So we've already said that if you can have a nice angry sky, that, 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 that's really nice. But I think it's probably also worth mentioning that the same place is probably worth many visits because it could look so different in different weathers. And, and that leads up to that, to that idea of like going to the same place four times a year. I do love four, doing that, yeah. Four-season shot. You yeah. can set up in the same place, yeah. 
Yeah, because, uh, yeah, definitely, because there's a very different feel to a place. And to me, actually, it's slightly perverse, but I I would say that the single worst kind of weather to take a nice landscape shot in is a clear blue sky. Not that I have that problem very often. Um, But, I mean, if there's absolutely nothing in the sky but blue, to me, that's actually very difficult to deal with because you then kind of have to do everything you possibly can to, to stop that boringness ruining the photo. Again, I say depends. <laughs> no, no, there are ways around it, right? It, it just makes you... To me, it's well, like a challenge. It's, I now have to deal with the fact that the sky is so empty. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, depends on what you're shooting. I mean, you have this blue sky in the top. What's down below? What are you, you know... You know, if you've got this perfectly flat beach, you know, I'm thinking about where the, where the uh, it's clean and it's perfectly orange and you have this blue sky, you've got an incredibly interesting abstract potential there. Um, sorry, potential for an abstract style landscape where you've got a big block of blue in the top half and you've got a big big block of orange at the bottom. I mean, again, it's... And I've just managed to contradict myself again in my own Flickr stream. I should stop looking at my own photos when I'm talking. And, and, and I, just shared, I just shared something to, to the stream uh, that actually talks about both things that, you, that we were just saying about going to a place different seasons but uh one of my favorite images or or one of the images that i get the most compliments on is that schoolhouse in the wheat field but Mm. it there's not not a cloud in the sky and one of the things that makes it so interesting is what antonio just said which is you have the bottom third or so of the image a very golden wheat field and the top of the image is the schoolhouse and and a crystal blue sky with no clouds in it so it's the contrast, it's the color, um, and the blueness, you know, that does that. But, but the other, it, I shared out the, uh, uh, dip pick that we did. It's, I, it's got the wheat field in the early spring when it's green. And then in the, in the later year when it's, when it's golden. So it's a different, same picture, different image really. Yeah. And what what actually just popped into the show notes. So having said that, you know, blue skies are a terrible challenge, I managed to prove myself, well, not wrong, but I ended up in a place that was like a perfectly calm lake with a perfectly oh, wow. blue sky. So I just said, oh, I'll have two of those, please. Mm-hmm. So you can always get around every challenge. But I, I still think that the nicest weather is if you, if someone would be so kind as to give me a blue sky with fluffy white clouds, please. One fluffy white cloud. <laughs> Actually, well, no, if you have a couple of them, they can be nicer. They can, they then the can. picture becomes about the cloud too. If you had the well, it can it doesn't yeah. have to, but it can. No, you're right, and then you can really have fun because sometimes you can just like take like the tiniest sliver of landscape at the bottom of your shot and just this really cool sky over it. That can work too. Like in fact, going right back to the very beginning, if you look at your example shots from way way back at the start about your skyscapes, that's kind of what you're doing there is you're letting the sky completely dominate the scene. Yeah. Okay, well, we have been recording for almost an hour. Does anyone have any final thoughts to tie it all up for us in a neat little package? Well, I just, I, I threw in a couple of shots, and you've been seeing, I threw in a couple of panoramics, and that was just the one, ah, yes. one thing that I kind of wanted to sort of touch on a little bit. Um, just in terms of, you know, we didn't really get to talk about lenses or anything like that, you know, because you, you can do landscapes with telephoto lenses and wide-angle lenses and whatever. But, uh, you know, this idea of a panoramic is, uh, to me, it really appeals to me. It used to be in the past, you know, you needed a special camera to do a panoramic. Now you just take a, 
you can take an iPhone and just wave it around. And get In fact, it. And, an iPhone makes it really easy because it stitches it all for you and tells you it, if you're going too high or too low. It does, and it, you end up actually with the. Uh, I mean, hopefully they'll they'll increase the resolution of <laughs> of the the iPhones the next generation or something like that. But you still end up right now with a pretty decently sized file. Um, well, especially if you hold it in portrait mode and then scan. Cause, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's enough to print with. You can make a nice print. And It's, it's also sorry, good enough, right? Because I, I was standing in a harbor, and there was a speedboat leaving the harbor. And there was like a tiniest gap in the clouds. It was like, I have to take this picture now, or I'm never getting the chance again. And I used the iPhone, and I scanned across the harbor while a speedboat moved through my frame. <laughs> the iPhone dealt with it. Not really? only did the speedboat only in at once, the wake was a proper V-shape. Really? Really. It was wow. black magic. But it, it worked. So I must dig that up for the show notes, actually, because I was amazed at how... I thought, I am asking far too much of my iPhone here. It can never possibly do this. And it was perfectly happy with it. Yeah. The, the, the two techniques I'm using are either... I mean, the cameras I've got now will have a panoramic mode, which I don't find very good on a lot of cameras. It will, the cameras will stitch them together. On my Fuji, the stitching is actually pretty terrible. And you can kind of see the different exposures. But it's, frankly, the iPhone is much better than that. But the other thing is, this is where I said bringing, bringing a tripod. You, you could do it handheld as well, but you're basically just taking a bunch of pictures, maybe holding the camera vertically, and then just sort of rotating your camera around, making sure you have enough overlap between each frame, and then getting back to using you know, Photoshop or some other panoramic stitching software and then stitching the pictures together. And the one shot that I'm particularly fond of, I think I put in the show notes, is a, is a lake that I shot in the fog. And the trees on the other side are creating a reflection um, in the lake. And, and it was a panoramic shot, and I thought it worked really well. I mean, to me, that, that landscape was really designed for a panoramic. Um, and so, you know, turning the camera sideways, doing the, doing the stitching. I think I might have done the stitching on my iPad, so it's not the greatest stitching possible. But uh, I've also done it with urban landscapes. And, of course, if you use an iPhone with a lot of parallel lines, you'll get that weird kind of curvy to uh, vanishing point style panoramic. Uh, you know, so the pictures are kind of, the buildings are kind of curved and whatnot. And I think I have a shot of New York City. It's kind the, of a weird effect, actually, because I, I took one on a, standing on a railway track. And because of the effect you're talking about, it looks like the railway track is V-shaped. Yeah, yeah. It, any, anytime you have, I'm going to say man-made objects, but things that have right angles on it, if you do that technique, it will look weird because they're curved. But it can work. It depends on the picture. I mean, I think the shot I posted was New York City, and it, I think it works. But, you know, especially with landscape pictures, there's, there's very little, like if trees and rocks and stuff like that, there's very little right angles. So doing that kind of panoramic technique, you would, you would hardly even notice uh, any distortion. Um, so I just want to sort of throw in to the pot that that panoramics is a is a is a way and also don't always think of horizontal panoramics oh think of vertical panoramics sometimes i mean again it depends on the subject that you're shooting you know not everything works in a vertical but uh you end up with some really nice files and they can print very large too and i'll i'll add to uh antonio's thought it's not a true panorama but uh, you might con- you might consider cropping 
an image that way. So uh, a big vista in front of you, um, maybe you got a little bit too much sky or a little too much uh, foreground, sometimes cropping it in a, what, 16 by 9 format or whatever, so it looks like a panorama might make the, mm-hmm. it might make the image more interesting so it's it's not not exactly what antonio's talking about actually shooting a panorama but cropping that way can make an image more interesting particularly a landscape i think it might be also useful for someone who is only starting and doesn't know how to stitch for example photographs because i think that requires either a bit of knowledge in photoshop or special software or an iphone or an iphone <laughs> <laughs> It's a funny world we live in, really, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, just wanted to add to that. If you're thinking about cropping, you know, also don't always think about, uh, I mean, I was talking about this with the panoramics, but don't, don't always think horizontal with anything. You know, think you, vertical makes great landscape pictures. And think of squares, too. You know, this idea of cropping your picture into, you know, a panoramic or a square or shooting vertical you know, our eyes tend to see horizontally, so there's this very big tendency for us to pick up the camera, put it in our face, and leave it horizontal. And like you were saying before, Bart, stay at eye level. Mm. You know, drop down to your knees, do vertical picture. You know, it, it, you can you end up with the, a, a landscape that is very different than what usually people are used to taking. Okay. Um, any any other final thoughts before we we wrap it up? Well, I, I think it's many many people think that professional photographers, when they when they arrive arrive to a scene, and for example, in this case of our discussion, when they photograph landscapes, they just arrive there and they take a picture. And this is not the case. I just always tell people to to try to spend some time uh, on a scene, not only enjoy the landscape uh, and many people forget to uh, because you know they just they are so focused on taking picture but I think it's also very important to enjoy the landscape and that will also help you on uh, figuring out what to focus and concentrate when you take a picture what should be the subject of a picture and you know don't be afraid to 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 look around even look behind you maybe there's something equally interesting behind you in terms of landscapes and just you know, as, as I think, as we mentioned, like go go down, go up, uh, and 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 play with photography. Cool. Um, as, as something else I just want to throw, and actually, is before we finish up, is that I, in my experience now, it may just be because I'm not a very good photographer, but it, I tend to get my best landscape shots on my second visit to a place because I will go somewhere once and i will have a look around and i will make some you know some mental notes to myself of yeah okay so for this to work i need the sun to be in this half of the sky or whatever and then i will sort of you know look at a few apps tinker around with a few things and then say okay so if i come back here in springtime at four o'clock in the afternoon this will be absolutely perfect and i'll make a little note of that and i'll come back and pretty much all of my landscape shots i really like are the result of getting to know a place and then deciding to come back later when i i know it's going to be you know, perfect. Like maybe it's a type of flower that only blossoms a certain type of year or whatever, you know, just the places, you know, best are the places you probably catch the best landscapes of. And coming back different times of the year, uh, you can use a tool. We've mentioned it before on, uh, 
tools on on an iPhone or whatever that'll tell you where the sun is going to be different times of the year, so you get those different angles or the light's going to be different or uh, so that's the other thing is that a lot different times of year you're going to get different light too. Probably the best example of that is Manhattan Hinge, but that that's right. <laughs> that's extra special timing. You don't just have to get like the vague time of year right. You got to be really correct on that one. I lived in New York all my life, and where this Manhattan Hinge just suddenly pops out of nowhere. <laughs> it must have existed for hundreds of years, right? No, it existed for hundreds of years. Someone decided to label it and call it something, and now it's a big deal. I'm like, I, you know, this is what I live with all the time. Okay, the build, you know, <laughs> it, it sets big deal. Okay, great. <laughs> it's pretty though. It can make some really pretty shots. It does. I mean, you know, and it's not just that one day. You've got a few days before and a few days after where the sun is setting just as you know down the streets as as Manhattan Hinge. Yeah, because uh, of course, parallel streets means it works in all of them. Yeah, um, do be do be um, um, careful when you're pointing your camera at the sun. <laughs> don't get run over. Yeah, and don't you know don't want to fry your eyeballs out either. Um, yes, but uh, a helpful tip for taking sunset exposures. We might have said this once before. Mm-hmm. You probably said it, but you know, meet, don't meter the sun. Meter um, off to the left or the right of the sun. You know, get the sun out of the frame. Yes, uh, and meter the sky to the left or the right, and then lock that exposure down, and then go back and shoot the sunset. You should be able to get a nice red orange ball in the sky, and then not blow out your, uh, you know, it won't underexpose. Anyway, cool. want to add that? Yeah, great tip. Anyone else want to chime in, or do we do we call it a wrap? I think we're wrapping. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, it's springtime for the Northern Hemisphere, so most of our listeners, the the landscape season is getting into full swing when the weather is going to be good and enticing you out, so get out and have fun. Uh, before we wrap up the show, Conrad, you dropped me an email during the week offering to do something really cool for all of us victims of the demise of Aperture, so do you want to tell the listeners what you have in mind? Sure. Uh, as probably most of you know, especially the Aperture users, Apple has pulled the plug on the Aperture product, and well, you have, you can, of course, you have an option to to stick with with Aperture, and fingers crossed it will work for the next year, two or three, uh, or you have an option to switch to, for example, Lightroom or uh, what's the other software part? Well, Capture One has my eye at the moment. Capture it's One, yes. And since since I I am a, a Lightroom user and I've been using it for. For a bit three, three or four years. I'm not an expert. I'm a user. I thought it might be an interesting if we have a hangout for those interested in looking into uh, Lightroom as as a choice of uh, after after you know giving up on on um, Aperture. So we can we can have a hangout. I don't have a date yet, but I think it might be next weekend or in two weeks. And we can have you know I can I can show you how it works. Uh, you can you can ask some questions, and I, I think there is an option for chat. I will, of course I will share my screen with you so you can see how it works and what it does or doesn't. Um, so I thought that uh, we will. I guess we will announce it on your Google Plus, uh, the, the podcast, the Google Perfect. Plus that is, uh, community. Yes. Um, and yeah, we will see how it works. And then, of course, afterwards, we'll be able to have a link. I am right that Hangouts can be saved later so people can view it later if they can't make that exact time. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So so by next month we'll we'll have that done and we'll announce it on the on the Google Plus group if you want to be there live. And then for those who can't make it, we'll have it linked. We'll link it in next next month's show notes as well, so people can go and watch. Because I'm very very curious. Because I'm going to have to change, and I haven't really decided where I want to go. So I'm totally in your audience for this. Cool. Okay, um, speaking of questions of any sort, um, last month was a listener Q&A show. We'll do another one in a few months' time. If you have any questions, please uh, either drop them in on the Google Plus community. It's a perfectly good way to do it. Or you can go to the Let's Talk Photography website, and if you there's a button there to submit questions, or you can just go to lets-talk.ie forward slash photo queue. We'll jump you straight to the right page. Um, also, if you happen to be on the website, there's two giant big blue buttons next to every show, which are the support the show buttons. Um, th- this show isn't free for me to produce, and I'd like to ra- to arrive at a point where it sort of pays for itself, where it breaks even is really all I'm aiming for. I'm not trying to make a living out of podcasting, but I would kind of like it to pay for itself. So basically, there's two options in, in the big blue buttons. There's Patreon, which is a very cool service where you pledge... X small amount of money per episode I managed to put out. And then, you know, when I put them out at the end of the month, Patreon will debit everyone's credit cards and then give me one big transfer, which means there's only one set of PayPal fees because it's one big transfer instead of lots of little transfers. And then the other option is a plain old click the button and make a PayPal donation. And all support is very much appreciated. And that includes simple stuff like just telling your friends about the show. That's every bit as much support. So thank you very much to all the panel. Um, I always appreciate you guys giving up freely of your time. So I was going to say in reverse order, but I can never remember the order I do things in. Oh, we did it east to west. So let's, no, we did it west to east. Let's go east to west. Antonio, where can you be found on the internets? Um, I can be found, mainly I'm spending my time now on my switch to manual. So why don't you, uh, everybody go to switch to manual.com and we've started our new, Tom and I have started our podcast. It seems to be doing well so we have a street shots podcast um which you can find on our site and itunes and Podbean, which is our hosting site so spending a lot of time there well um, i'm an avid listener so keep it up thank you yeah and uh actually i've been doing a lot of street photography now on instagram so uh-huh. uh look for me on uh, instagram at am rosario and twitter too so cool. those, are, those are my those are my main hangouts and thanks for having me always a pleasure antonio uh, Conrad, what what would you like to plug? Um, I think the easiest is the easiest is my my website, but I will spare you uh, spelling my <laughs> my full name. Uh, I just encourage everyone to go to the this episode's um, web page and just click on the link that uh, you might include in the notes. And I also would like to thank you for having me on this episode. My pleasure. And actually, just to say that uh, anyone who's ever been on this show, if you go to lets-talk.ie, there's a button called Panelists, which is a list of everyone who's ever been on as a guest and a link to their Twitter, to their Flickr and their Twitter and their websites and everything. So if any listener wants to find out about any panelists, they're all listed there on the Panelists page. Mark, what would you like to plug? Um, my own web page, uh, my photography page is twinlakesimages.com. And if you want to find out what I'm doing day to day, I'll, I guess probably, uh, Twitter is the best way to know what I'm doing. And I'm switcher Mark on Twitter. And also, uh, my Flickr stream is a switcher Mark. Excellent. I've been your host, Bart Bouchot. So you can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. 
You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. I'm Elisa Pasali. I'm Suze Gilbert. I'm Vicki Stokes. And we're the three geeky ladies. You could be watching Hoarders. Or you could be reading Fifty Shades of Grey. You could be ghost hunting. Or you could be listening to the three geeky ladies. So put down that book, shut off the TV, and turn on your iPod. And listen to the three geeky ladies. Find us on iTunes under the Stoplight Network.